The might of the final order will soon be ready. It will be yours if you do as I ask. Kill the girl. End the Jedi. And become what your grandfather Vader could not. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time George Lucas groupie, Andrew Raphael. I have A camera and B camera and I just sit on my ass drinking coffee and wait for something to happen. And slowly growing his magnificent chin slash neck. Yeah, as a divider. (laughs) And today we're venturing to a galaxy far, far away as we turn our iron cannons on Star Wars Episode 9, Electric Boogaloo. But is this sequel a star too far for a dying franchise, or have we unfairly treated this movie like fresh banther poodoo? Find out after the trailer. It's an instinct. together we're not alone good people will fight if we lead them people keep telling me they know me no one does From acclaimed director J.J. Abrams and a social media website Reddit comes a checklist of fan demands to be met or we'll shoot your dog. (laughs) If your favourite The Beatles album is The Best of The Beatles, then you're going to love Rise of Skywalker. Everyone's favourite villain, Sheev Palpatine, yes, that's his real name, is back from the dead, somehow, and ready to wreak havoc upon the universe. But this time he's joined by a sinister force known as Darth Disney. Will our heroes Ray, Finn and Poe manage to overcome this senile 90-year-old pensioner who requires an apparatus to move? The stakes have never been higher! And just to make you aware, folks, as well, this will be the first of a double bill Star Wars special, as unlike J.J. Abrams and Disney, we felt it best not to edit these two episodes down into one single (laughs) incomprehensible mess. So, Andy, Star Wars Episode Nine. it's just Rise of Skywalker, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, Rise of Skywalker. What did you think? Of Rise of Skywalker. Is this your first time watching the film? No. Yes, we went together to the cinema. I don't know why I asked. Oh, that—that's my answers to both questions. No. Oh right, is no. Yeah. And thank you for listening to Popcorn (laughs) Digest. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Andy, tell us a little bit about the history of you and Star Wars. Where did this relationship begin? I mean, I know that many of our listeners, our long-time listeners, will know that we've covered Star Wars on this podcast before. We did both the Ewok movies accidentally. <laughs> yeah. In a previous Christmas episode. Yeah. We did mention in there that we both do have very fond memories of the original trilogy, but I think it's best to summarize as well and say what our relationship is with this behemoth of a franchise so this section of the podcast will form the first part of uh, this <laughs> 10 part series on rise of skywalker oh dear god <laughs> yeah. but um yeah i have i mean i was thinking about this the other day i genuinely can't remember seeing star wars for the first time because from my point of view it's just always been there i genuinely yeah. can't remember the first time i saw new hope or or any of the original trilogy it's probably beyond my actual memory i must have seen them from very very small probably from like the ages of two or three because my parents had them on video i think we had an original vhs of a new hope mm-hmm. like the very first issue of it on vhs and then we had some remastered pre special edition remastered uh, versions of jedi and uh, empire i don't know why i'm saying them in the wrong order but never mind like i can see star wars fans going blasphemy <laughs> but yeah they've always been there even that Ewoks film, the, the the second one that we reviewed, I had that on video from a very early age. So I knew those films inside and out. Yeah. Yeah, I was really into it to the point where my parents, for quite a long time, and this was before the special edition came out, and any mention of the prequels being uh, made, back in the early 90s, Star Wars toys, the original Star Wars toys, they went for very, very cheap. You could... Yeah. You know, you could buy action figures for a penny. Mm-hmm. You know, I love Star Wars already at that point. Uh, my parents bought me a lot of early Star Wars toys, so I have quite a lot of Star Wars. Is that your pension? It's my pension scheme. <laughs> well, until all, of these, until all these other films came and fucked it up. But yeah, it was my, pe- it was yeah. my pension scheme. They're probably all worthless now. <laughs> but yeah, I've got a lot of books and vehicles, action figures you know the lot and yeah i just always watch them I, you know i got the special editions on video watched quite a few of those at the cinema when they had the re-release i mean do you remember as well like the fanfare surrounding the re-release oh, of the yeah. special editions yeah. because i was trying to remember earlier today did they release them over the same summer in a sporadic pattern yeah they did like a staggered release but they were all released in the cinemas that's how i remembered it being released was like over the one big summer period yeah and i remember going to the cinema to go see jedi and the queue was around the corner of my local cinema and that was in the 90s Mm. so even then the appetite for more star wars was just incredible and yeah i was just really into star wars and not even the release and aftermath of episode one, The Phantom Menace, not even that mm. could curtail my enthusiasm for Star Wars. I mean, I, you know, I've said this many times on the podcast before. I think I went to see that film about nine times at the cinema. Yeah. Even then, I mean, I knew it wasn't as good as the original trilogy, but even so, I still had a certain degree of enjoyment for it. It wasn't until Attack of the Clones came out that my fervent love of Star Wars started to wane somewhat. Yeah. I mean, in between those two as well, I went to a Star Wars convention. Oh, really? A local Star Wars convention in Devon. As C-3PO. <laughs> no, it was a pretty good time because the guests that they'd managed to assemble, it was definitely not an official one because David Prowse was there. Right. But they'd managed to gather quite a few people for this convention. They had uh, yeah, they had David Prowse, they had uh, Kenny Baker, they had um, Richard Le Parmentier, they had uh, Ken Colley. 
and Michael Sheard as well, who was like master of ceremonies and was a, a very nice man. I'm trying to think what the um, non-copyright infringement name of this <laughs> festival would have been. I no idea, but it was great. And I got, I got <laughs> well, my... Well, did, it have, like, did it have each of these stars advertised by like the other films that they had been in? No, like, no, David it was a Prowse proper... I don't understand. From the safety videos you have seen about crossing the road. It was just at some, uh, some leisure centre. Don't know, because I don't know what the status of those kind of things now i imagine it's got worse than clamping down on things like that um after yeah. that time because i think it was about 2000 when i went to that convention but yeah it was great and i you know i got my um a star wars action figure book mm-hmm. the action figure encyclopedia or something like that and um you lived a wild life in your childhood my friend it has all the different types of action figure that were released up to that time like both old <laughs> and new yeah and i got it signed by kenny baker oh lovely so that's cool that is pretty cool so you have quite a fondness as yeah, well for yeah. the original trilogy. But then Attack of the Clones came out and my love, I wouldn't say it completely died, but it was uh, very much diminished. Yeah. I remember watching that film and uh, afterwards my mum my mom never says this about films, like especially in the cinema when we used to watch films, but she was like, that was a load of shit. <laughs> <laughs> like she said afterwards, like... I just remember watching it and going, why is this so boring? And why does it look like a video yeah. game? Because even the first one doesn't look like that. Yeah, I tried to convince myself that I enjoyed Attack of the Clones. And I think it was like about a month after it came out and I had seen it for like the fifth time. And the thing that I kept on holding on to, which has become something of a meme on the critic circles in and of itself, was, well, Empire gave it five oh, out of five. Oh, infamous five out of five. It must be good. And so for for like about a good month after release, I was still I'm talking to my friends. I was like, no, I think I think we've just got it wrong. I think it's it's doing something different. And and it was like about a month later, I was like, oh my god, it's. I remember going to see it and like the wool had been pulled from my eyes. Yeah, and I could see it then, and that really damaged Star Wars for me. But I would say that up until this point. Although we've had, you know, different films come out and TV series and a variety of games and books and all all of this is to like a varying degrees of success. Mm. I would still say that my opinion of the original trilogy went largely unchanged until very recently for reasons that we will get into soon yeah but like i have a very similar background when it comes to star wars with yourself is that star wars is a film that i think the generation that raised us loved so much that i can't remember a time before i mean obviously the for me there was never a time before star wars i was born in 86 but i can't remember the first time i watched it I do remember seeing it on VHS, but it was in 4x3 pan and scan. Yeah, yeah. That must have been like the version that I had seen for the first time, was watching it in the 4x3 pan and scan. Yeah. And yeah, I I was huge on Star Wars growing up. Everybody at our school was. And like say, I remember the fervor surrounding the the release of the special editions as well. And they came at a time as well where CGI was in something of a transitional period. It was new and exciting. And even the worst CGI back then, I was still just happy to see it on screen. (laughs) Whereas now I can really see it for the trash that it is, like how they kind of muddied those films. But I would even think like the special editions I would feel fonder about if we just had access to the original versions of the film. Yeah. Anyway, yes, they're very similar. I won't go through like my relationship with Star Wars in much further detail just because it's very much similar to your own. And I think that people of our generation will know exactly what we're talking about. Like people that were raised in like the born in the late 80s and early 90s that just grew up in a pop culture 
environment that was just enriched with Star Wars related activity i guess do you remember those halcyon days when there were only three star wars movies and only three <laughs> indie movies only three raiders movies <laughs> <laughs> okay so yes let's move on to rise of the skywalker so as everybody knows that listens to this podcast normally before we begin to discuss our opinions on the film that is our topic we do like to go into the context and the history of the film. Now, this one is weird in that it's both a film that is very recent, but it also has a lot of history to go into it. And I have some points that I want to discuss, and they're mainly going to be surrounding the transition from The Last Jedi into Rise of the Skywalker. But Andy, I just wanted to ask, do you have anything to add before I begin down that road of the uh, the, the Colin Trevorrow saga, we'll call it? Uh, do you have anything to add just in regards to the making of these films i think the big thing that i noticed from the off when disney bought lucasfilm even when we were first hearing about the news and I'm, i remember talking about yeah. it with you at the time it did send alarm bells ringing that they'd in one fell swoop announced that they'd bought lucasfilm and they basically had a release date yeah for the first episode done and dusted within the same meeting and that sent alarm bells ringing because they'd greenlit a film when the ink hadn't even dried on the contract. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big issue that all these films, every single one that they've made so far, yep. has suffered from, that they went out of the gate far too quickly with any of these films. That is where the foundations for destruction were really... like. That's where the seeds of destruction were sown in, in regards to this series. Because I think as well, like, I will talk positively about the prequels just in this sense, but I do understand that they came to be made because George Lucas essentially needed a hit as well. And he needed something to reinvigorate his kind of financial situation, the divorce, for example. <laughs> and that was like a motivating factor behind him making the prequels, but it wasn't something that he rushed into. It was still something that he thought about we see the way that he writes scripts and it's kind of like he locks himself in a room and then in the last three hours he writes a script. <laughs> <laughs> but the decision to make those films weren't ones that he just rushed into without any plan of action or plan of idea or anything like that. It was something that he actually came round to over the years. If he really wanted to capitalise on the success of Star Wars, he could have made another three films three years afterwards essentially yeah, yeah. what disney are going to do now yeah instead he waited until he needed to make the films and until he had an idea of what he wanted to do i don't like what george lucas did with those films but i get that that is the way really that films should be made with disney like you could see the stark difference in terms of the way in which star wars films had been made in the past to how they're made now within a studio system straight from the off the moment that the ink before it was even dry on the page, they had essentially announced a release date. And that straight from the off tells you that there's something more at play here. And I think the $4 billion price tag that Lucasfilm had was really the motivating factor behind just getting a Star Wars film out there in any way, shape or form. Yeah. But in many ways, I think has actually come as something of a financial hindrance now. Yeah. Because they've rushed those films out, because they've pushed them through without really much thought as to what they want to do and what their vision is for this series. I think just that first foundational step, it's really undercut them on a long-term basis. I think as well, I'm not sure whether... George himself. I mean, despite my 
extreme reservations about the prequels, they did have some purpose. Like, they were created with a purpose in mind. And a sense of vision. Yeah, but I'm not quite sure what motivated Lucas to sign over Lucasfilm to Disney in the first place. There was always seemed to be something not quite right about it, even from the start. It seems to have been reported that he feels kind of betrayed by the people that he put in charge, i.e. You know, Kathleen Kennedy and, and, and yeah. obviously Bob Iger and everybody. Bob Iger actually writes about it quite candidly in his book. and um, I mean, it's a book I, I would recommend. I spoke about it on the Twin Peaks episode mm. of the show. But it, it does get a bit wishy-washy. You do feel like there's only so much he can reveal or wants to reveal as well. Yeah, it's the lawyer's cut. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. But when it comes to the Star Wars element of the book and the selling of Lucasfilm to Disney, you get a sense as well that it was a decision that George Lucas took as an almost... Like he said no so many times to Bob Iger in regards to the sale. And then the last minute decided, okay, yeah. Like his arm had been twisted into accepting mm-hmm. the deal. And I think there was a promise, like an unwritten promise, that George Lucas was still going to have more authority within the studio system. Yeah, yeah. But as soon as the ink was dry on the page, he found that he actually, he had sold away his baby, essentially, and they kind of just left him behind in the dust of the deal Mm. to go and enjoy his millions. He essentially had no authority whatsoever over anything that was made within the series. And they tow him out every now and again to be the, (laughs) like, to to have some pictures taken on on the red carpet, like, oh, look, look, we we still have him around here, this old geezer. (laughs) But from every interview that he has, you can tell that his opinion of that deal has soured completely. It's the old joke of this deal gets worse every time. <laughs> Pray that I don't alter it any further. It's <laughs> yeah. like a robot chicken one that they made out of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think the way that they've made these films, I mean, as much as I don't like the prequels, it goes so much against the whole ethos of Lucasfilm in the first place, like the way that they yeah. used to make those you know, all the Lucasfilm films, you know, we were talking about Willow and, and yeah, the prequels and the special editions and the original Star Wars and everything else in between. They were always created with a purpose and yeah. with a purpose of telling a story mm-hmm. that needed telling. Uh, whether or not it was good or not, it, it didn't matter. It still had some sort of value system <laughs> attached. Every time we both talk about the prequels, we have to like like place it within context there's a huge keep, asterisk like, next to <laughs> like reminding the audience that we still do not like these no, films no the thing that i will say about them as well is and again i'm not a particular fan of this but i like that this something along these lines was attempted you can tell that he was trying to say something about the world that we lived in at the time with its whole commentary on the war on terror and that type of thing and the loss of democracy to dictatorship and that type of thing within the uh, within the Senate. You can see that he's retelling a story. We even have characters that are repeating lines that are almost George W. Bush verbatim. Mm. So George Lucas behind that, he has a vision of what he wants to tell. He, he's kind of playing about with the aesthetics and the dressing of that story to meet some fan demands. Because if you remember as well, people said that The Phantom Menace was too childlike, so he made Attack of the Clones a bit more gritty, apparently. <laughs> but you can tell that there's a sense of a message behind what he's trying to tell when i look at this sequel trilogy i don't know what the message is i think there is only one film with a with a message that is the last jedi and i will say that's the film that works the most for me but we'll get into that later as well because i Mm. still think it's not without its faults 
But by and large, if you if you take that step back and look at it as a beginning, middle, and end, I don't know what that series is trying to say. Now it was created without a, a central purpose. I don't I, I don't think there really was because I mean I mean even when Force Awakens came out and you you got the um, the artwork book. Yeah, the the art of the Force Awakens. A lot of the concept art. It's almost like a way of of generating ideas yeah. rather than the other way around. It's like the art's dictating the the ideas rather than the traditional way around where you have an idea for a story and then you bring in concept artists later and um, they sort of make your on-paper ideas, you know, they translate them in a visual sense. Whereas this is just a grab bag of, oh, that would be cool. Yes. And them trying to scramble some sort of story out of these images. And uh, a lot of the images in the book ended up being reused in uh, later films and, and predominantly the film that we're going to be talking about. Yes. And another book was deleted actually before mm. release. And J.W. Rinsler had written a making of, an extensive making of, of, of The Force Awakens, much in the same way that he had written about the original trilogy. However, when that came to actual publication disney decided it was best not to release that book they found it perhaps was too revealing of the turmoil behind the scenes because one <laughs> thing as well even in the making of documentary for rise of skywalker jj abrams talks about the force awakens as him just getting a star wars film out of his system and when that film was finished he had the sense that well I'm not making another Star Wars film again. That's it now. I can relax. Essentially, he had such a negative experience making that film because he was essentially making it up as they went along to the point in which I'm sure I remember reading somewhere that they referred to at one point the fact that Harrison Ford broke his leg as a godsend. <laughs> so it allowed them time to refocus the script. And I get the feeling that that's why that film relies on so many plot points and so much in a way of familiar imagery that I think that's symptomatic of a film made without an idea of what they want it to be. I remember as well before filming even began on Force Awakens, them begging Disney for more time. Yeah. Do you remember that when they were like, we want another six months, we want another year, and Disney just kept saying no. Mm -hmm. Because originally was that, that was going to be released in the May of 2015 and they managed to extend it by another sort of eight months or something and it took harrison ford breaking his leg yeah. for them to agree to push the film back mm. and i remembered reading as well that it was all to do with the the yearly stockholder meeting like they needed it to be within a certain year to come down within a certain year in order for it to look good on their books mm. and if it came out beyond that point beyond that stock year the tax year or whatever it is it looked far worse it was all about the perception of the company rather than it was about the artistic integrity or yeah. anything like that. And also it was about the short-term perception of the company as well. I think that's what yeah. business seems to yo-yo between short-term and long-term constantly. Mm -hmm. This just got caught in that short-term vision for the company, which I think was the complete wrong way to look at it. Yeah, It's strange. They looked at it as, and they constantly discuss it as being a long-term investment, but they treated it as a short-term thing, which I don't understand. I know Bob Iger as well, in his book, he does speak about the fact that he places the blame on the place in which Star Wars is at now on himself, because he asked for a lot of Star Wars products very quickly, and he wanted Star Wars everything yesterday. And he said that it led us to a point in which we didn't know where we were going with not just the series, but the franchise as a whole. Mm. And I guess this is where this break has come from. It's like oh, it's out of necessity to really put the brakes on. I know we've still got The Mandalorian going on TV, and that does feel like it's a show with some sort of artistic vision behind it as well. 
that and that seems to be given a lot more space a lot more breathing space to allow directors and writers to come in and make something a little bit more interesting within that brand but as for the films they've really put the brakes on what they make and i don't think it's been decided what's really going to happen next i know um taika watiti is uh, supposed to be the uh, the architect behind whatever incarnation we see next but I don't know if that's completely set in stone yet. No, I mean, even something I was reading this morning, even though some of these things have been sort of tentatively announced, nothing is set in stone. It's almost like it seemed to be a little bit, a little bit of a smokescreen at the moment because from a lot of the things I've been looking at, there seems to be some sort of internal ructions within Lucasfilm yeah. itself uh, in terms of who is going to be in control at the end of the day. I'm not sure you know, how many of the... The alleged leaks that are coming out at the moment are uh, mm-hmm. indeed true, but it doesn't seem like all is well in Lucasfilm at the moment anyway. <laughs> it does feel like they're just busy scratching their heads, I think. I think even if you disregard the leaks and are able to read between the lines in terms of the like the comings and goings of certain directors and writers and the constant mutual creative difference statements that come out from that company you get the feeling that there is no sense of vision or direction behind what they want to do with this or or the the other option could be that there's just too many people with an opinion on what they want star wars to be and as a result that's coming up with this kind of soup of of a mess of ideas Mm. and i do have some things to say as well just in regards to i think one place it's good to start with the context the the making of the film i do want to talk about the last jedi today as well because i think the last jedi is instrumental it's a necessity to discuss the last jedi when discussing rise of the skywalker yeah but um just to go over the very basics as well about the making of the film i think we better get into the colin trevorrow saga because Talking about directors coming and going, that is a big one for this franchise. Because I, I remember when we went to see The Last Jedi. Uh, was he fired after The Last Jedi? Just prior, I think. But yeah, I remember when we had seen one of the films, probably The Force Awakens, and we were talking about we couldn't wait to see Ryan Johnson's sequel. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, <laughs> we could probably do without Colin Trevorrow's yeah. trilogy Kappa. Yeah. So even then, there was some trepidation towards that particular film in the series. So Colin Trevorrow was hired to direct Star Wars Episode Nine in 2015, and that was following the success of Jurassic World, which, despite the fact that I think it is a rather terrible film, yeah. it made a lot of money, and it was made with Steven Spielberg's blessing as well. He does have an executive producer credit, and as such, I think that meant that he had an in when it came to the Star Wars franchise. He pitched them his idea for what the third film should be, and apparently Kathleen Kennedy and Bob Iger really responded to what the idea of the film was going to be. However, after being hired to direct and write this film with his uh, writing partner, Derek Connolly, we do have the bomb that came out that is The Book of Henry. I haven't seen The Book of Henry, but I did read the script, and the script (laughs) is amazingly bad. I had a lot of fun reading that script. And Also, in the years since, Jurassic World, although it was a financial success, and its sequel was a financial success as well, it had gained this critical backlash towards the actual quality of the films. Mm. Because I think the reason that the Jurassic World films are a success is because there are no other dinosaur movies out there, and kids love dinosaurs. To be honest, I want to watch dinosaur movies as well. (laughs) I really do think that the perception of those films, because they are not good, I think that's come round in a big way when it comes to Colin Trevorrow now. 
even though this, he can make money and he's proved that he can make money within these franchises, he's not proved himself to be in, like an artistic talent, which is what the series needs. Someone with some artistic flourish. Yeah. I don't think he has a particularly great instinct for cinema. I mean, he doesn't have a good eye. I mean, if you look at the shot compositions in Jurassic World, they're pretty uh, pedestrian. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm sure there's something wrong with him. There's a book of Henryness about him. He has some very odd ideas. I mean, he is probably a little bit uh, George Lucas-like in that respect. But with the book of Henry, it's like, I have to question the sanity of everyone involved in that film because why did no one go, excuse me, this is absolute bullshit and doesn't make any fucking sense and is quite wrong, like morally, at the same time (laughs) i read the same scripts i read it before the film came out and i read that script and i couldn't believe that somebody had read that script and thought it was a good idea to make that movie yeah to be honest if there's any people out there that are listening that are taking any screenwriting courses or just basic writing courses as well and you want to know an idea of what not to do in terms of (laughs) the structure of your scripts and the story and how it unfolds in the exposition i would say particularly when it comes to tone considering that some of the twists in that film to pay attention to the tone of the piece as well considering the magnitude of what's actually happening yeah that's the script to read really yeah i will say though that isn't a colin trevorrow script i know that he apparently rewrote it but the version that i read was not a colin trevorrow script but he read that script and thought i need to make that movie it's the fact that he thought that would make a good idea for a film you know, a mm. good script to make a film off. I mean, that I think the thing that with Colin Trevorrow that it's proven people constantly harp on about safety not guaranteed, but the thing is, safety not guaranteed is an okay film. I enjoyed it, yeah. But it's fine in its very unambitious terms mm-hmm. and its little sort of thing that it's carved out for itself. Yeah, so it's, it's like a lovely little indie movie. That It's not like it's the most ambitious film when it comes to the way in which the story is told or anything like that. It's just... A nice little character piece. Yeah, which wasn't written by him. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and I think just every other film that he's like made or been involved in is just dog <laughs> shit, really. <laughs> like, he's not yeah. made anything redeemable. I mean, even like Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, J.A. Bayona directed the shit out of that film, but it's based on an absolute dog shit screenplay. Yeah. It's like shit on my shoes screenplay. like it is night and day when you compare it to jurassic world in terms of like the shot composition the pacing of it the way in which he constructs his set pieces as well and the reveals within fallen kingdom is so much a step above but it's it becomes so much more apparent how bad the script is yeah because it works in one sense but doesn't whatsoever in the other it's still just rotten to its core yeah yeah But anyway, Jewel of the Fates. (laughs) Yes, I was just about to say, we should say that the script that he actually wrote with Derek Connolly is Jewel of the Fates, which is an obvious reference to episode one. And I will say that as a script, have you read the script Jewel of the Fates? I've read some of it. I watched the breakdown, so I know all the main story beats. I read it, but I will say that Jenny Nicholson does a fantastic breakdown of the script that to be honest, you don't really need to read it. It's probably best just to watch that. It's yeah, a, yeah. It is a really great in-depth and rather funny breakdown of the script. <laughs> yes. But from what I could gather, it seemed to try and bridge the gap between the prequels and the sequel trilogy in terms and, and even the original trilogy in terms of the places that it's going to, the aesthetics that it was seemed to be dealing with as well. Like Coruscant seems to be a huge factor in the story as well it seems Mm. to be essentially the beating heart in terms of the location of the film it seems to be the beating heart at the center of the proposed film i should say and 
in some ways, I can see how this is a better sequel to The Last Jedi. Not a better sequel. I can see that it is a sequel to The Last <laughs> Jedi. It yeah, just yeah. is a sequel. It seems to be taking some of the themes and moving on with them. But I also think that it's just as flawed as Rise of Skywalker's script, but in just completely different ways. Yeah, yeah. In a more Colin Trevorrow, Derek Connolly way. Just seems to have the strange things going on with the characters. I mean, like the big ears, the Poe and Ray thing that they yeah. try and almost try and replicate the Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard thing that they yeah. just lean back on every now and again. If they had gone with that, it would have been weird that in each film, Ray would have possibly had a different romantic interest. Because in the first one, it's supposed to be Finn, really. And then in the second one, it's Kylo. And then in the third one, it was going to be Poe. <laughs> yeah. And also, just the narrative doesn't seem to gel together particularly well. Like you've got that no. whole thing with Kylo Ren in his sort of half-metal face and going to Torvalon and all that kind of bullshit. Torvalon, yeah. Yeah. And it just seems like lots of mini-stories trying to become mm -hmm. one flowing narrative but not really managing it. And then you've got that kind of Harry Potter ending at the end. Yeah. <laughs> with the Ray Solana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually written on my notes that I have a Harry Potter feeling when it comes to Rise of the Skywalker anyway. Yeah. And it's not just John Williams. But yes, um, Duel of the Fates as well. It also has probably the worst line in a Star Wars script ever, <laughs> which is when one of the characters dies. Hooks, in fact, it says. Um, it says something like, Hooks is dead. He has lost the Star Wars. <laughs> Oh. And I, I, I was like a mix of angry and happy when I read oh. that line. I want to read the original script that was written in crayon. Uh. <laughs> no, you just think that's brown crayon. It isn't. Just dipped in shit. Yeah, just one poopy finger. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that that script was going to be rewritten, wasn't it, by um, Jack Thorne? Yes. Bob Iger and Kathleen Kennedy didn't like the script or the direction that the film was going into. So they brought on Jack Thorne, who is Star Wars Rising, essentially on the back of his work on the Harry Potter stage play. Mm. I think that had just been released around that yeah, time as well. Yeah, yeah. We actually know somebody that worked on the original production as well. Yeah, we do. You went to university with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so <laughs> Jack Thorne was brought on board <laughs> to, uh, to do a rewrite but neither Kennedy nor Trevorrow really liked that particular rewrite and Trevorrow wanted another go at the script but Kennedy went nah and he was yeah. essentially let go from the production. And Book of Henry had crashed and burned by this point as well. So Yeah. yeah. So I, I think uh, the floor had kind of fallen out finally underneath Trevorrow when it comes to his time on Star Wars. He does speak about it fondly. I know that Daisy Ridley, there's that story that she told where Colin Trevorrow came to him and explained what her arc would be for that film and she started crying in the bar that she was in and she thought she couldn't wait. And I remember when I was reading the script, I was like, which which part is she referring to that made her cry? <laughs> was she crying in a kind of, oh, it's so shit? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was it <laughs> when Hooks was killed? Oh, he lost the Star Wars. <laughs> he lost the Star Wars. And like, maybe she was like, oh, I've lost the romance with, with Oscar Isaac. <laughs> it wasn't very good. And 
I get completely why it was dropped. I will say as well, I've just got a piece of information that when asked by the uh, the website io9 about why Trevorrow was dropped from the film, Kennedy had this to say. Well, I wouldn't say it didn't work. Colin was at a huge disadvantage not having been part of Force Awakens and in part of those early conversations because we had a general sense of where the story was going. Like any development process, it was only in the development that we're looking at a first draft and realizing that it perhaps was heading into a direction that many of us didn't really feel that it was quite where we wanted it to go. And we were on a schedule that should be like the starting line of the crawl for any Star Wars film that's released. <laughs> There's so much wrong with this statement. <laughs> like uh, Star Wars <laughs> Episode Nine: Rise of the Skywalker. We were on a schedule. Um, so I said, and we were on a schedule as we often are with these movies and had to make a tough decision as to whether or not we thought we could get there in time or not. Uh, and as I said, Colin was at a disadvantage because he hadn't immersed himself in everything that we all had starting out with episode seven. But I'm like, sorry, Kathleen, I'm going to have to stop you there, right? So you <laughs> had all these meetings yeah. and things regarding the, the general shape of the trilogy. And I'm assuming you, you're going to have assistants that are either videotaping, recording this, yeah. or making notes, you know, doing minutes. Because obviously, with something as big as this, you are going to have, you know, you want to document absolutely everything that you can, mm -hmm. and you don't let the director of your third movie <laughs> see any of this I know, before yeah. making the fucking script. No. Um, so no, I'm thinking no, all. No, the no. <laughs> so I'm thinking all these uh, meetings that you had actually don't fucking exist. <laughs> like they never actually <laughs> yeah. had these conversations in the first place. You're making it up as you're fucking going along, aren't it's you? It's a diplomatic answer that one it really is uh, it's like... i mean i've got a, i've got a ton of those written down <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the stock answer really yeah for all that she says about colin having not been there during the early conversations with jj abrams about making the force awakens like well neither was ryan johnson he still made a film <laughs> yeah he only came in sort of towards the back end of wasn't it like exactly yeah <laughs> it's just a bullshit answer really yeah. to say that we realized we had hired the wrong person too late we had already lost our bottle as to what we, the kind of film that we wanted to make yeah. and we realized it, it, that we had no vision it's all post last jedi reaction conversation isn't it as well because that's maybe something we need to sort of maybe touch on as well as the release of last jedi well i was going to say that does bring us on to really our next point is because uh, ryan johnson was actually rumored to be in line to replace trevorrow although johnson says this was never the case when the rumors did actually come out and were reported to the press that ryan johnson was going to be the next big honcho behind the last film uh, the very next day jj abrams was hired <laughs> <laughs> which uh, yeah says everything and jj abrams brought on the uh, co-writer of batman vs superman chris terrio to help rewrite the previous drafts uh, most of it was thrown out and they started from scratch they did keep the spy element uh, like the beginning of the film i think has it's not the spy element not with hooks but the the very beginning i think of the film yeah, where yeah. they where they meet that little character that gives them some sort of information yeah. that's from the script and i think a couple of scenes later you see that particular character that gives them the information get executed on coruscant as a rebel i remember thinking that was a good moment. Yeah, there's there's a lightsaber guillotine. Yeah, that's the only thing that survived because obviously that character, even though it's a completely different character, is beheaded. Yeah, his head is on the table, and that's pretty much all that survived from Colin Trevorrow's script. There's literally nothing left. To be honest, 
I liked that. I did like that part of the script as well, especially the execution in front of the crowd. However, the lightsaber guillotine is like, what? Mm. It's got crystals in it. Don't ask. (laughs) So, yes, but I think as well, that really opens the door into The Last Jedi. So, Andy... It's been a few years now. I remember that we both went to see Last Jedi. We were both quite positive about it at the time, but we've allowed it to sit now. We've had another film be released, really, in the wake of The Last Jedi, and opinions have changed for a lot of people for that film, both negative to positive and positive to negative. You know, it's one of those films that's been a bit fluid in terms of the reaction. So I want to know, where do you stand with The Last Jedi now? It's funny, because I I was going to watch it in the lead-up to this, but then I... uh couldn't be asked to be honest the aftermath of rise yeah has kind of made me just not asked about watching any of the sequel trilogy because that's a big feeling on my side as well i'll go into that i'm kind of i'm not on the fence but i'm kind of mixed and i can kind of see both viewpoints because whilst i find some of the things that they do in last jedi quite interesting and it's quite surprising and, and subverting which I think is good. And I like, I, you know, I love the idea about Ray coming from nowhere. It's and the best idea the series had. Bringing back that idea that anyone can have the power of the Force, which seemed to be the thing that people loved about, you know, A New Hope in the first place. Yeah. That seems to have been battened down over the years. And it kind of reintroduces that concept. I can understand, even though I find it myself to be quite an interesting path to go down, I can completely understand why people would not like how Ryan Johnson handled Luke because I'm thinking in the shoes of a a long-term fan, for example, who's maybe grown up on reading um, like the books and, and everything, wanting some sort of further adventures of Luke Skywalker mm-hmm. and then being confronted with this very postmodern take on the character. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. To be completely turned off by it. I think the thing that didn't help the cause, there was some maybe very oddly placed humor in the film which i maybe think on a second pass you could have lost i think there was you know because people Mm. always bring up that stuff you know when he's drinking that green milk for example i am a green milk fanboy yeah but all those (laughs) business all that little business with the little people that live on the island which seem to just magically appear considering they went you didn't see any of them in the previous film from a writer's point of view i i like what they did with luke i'm not sure it was executed as well as it could have been. But at the same time, I have to applaud it for trying something new. Because <laughs> yep. it, it's the only fucking film that actually tries something new. Uh, gets its fingers burnt for it, but it tries. I came out of The Last Jedi very positively. And I was quite surprised by the negative reaction towards the film. I do get it. I do in some sense. I particularly think now on, on re-watching it the whole part of the film that doesn't work for me and that didn't work for me on my first go through as well that I was hoping would improve on further rewatches is the whole canto bite sequence i think it touches upon a good idea buried within the whole section of that film but uh, yeah I, I don't think that whole section really works it feels a bit harry potterish as well yeah the ride on the horse things i forgot what they're called yeah and I also think it does a massive disservice to the character of Finn. Yeah, I think Ryan Johnson really struggled with what to do with Finn, actually. Yeah, I think that's an issue with the character after Force Awakens. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because I, yeah. I think 
looking at it in retrospect, the character of Finn is botched from the word go because on paper he should be the most interesting character. Yeah. And in my opinion, and I'll go into this later, he should have perhaps been the central element of this series. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what what I do think worked, I sorry, I know my son's kicking off at the moment, he's teething, so this will be one of those episodes <laughs> where we have a third guest that is a crying baby. <laughs> I love this version of, of Luke Skywalker. Like, this is the only logical version of Luke Skywalker as well after The Force Awakens. Like, I absolutely buy into Ryan Johnson's idea of why wasn't Luke there when Han died? Why didn't he feel it if he was so in tune with The Force? Unless he had simply cut himself off from The Force completely. Mm. And it's like, there's only one logical explanation for that. But I love what Ryan Johnson does with it. And I love that it's essentially a redemption arc for him. And I also like the unreliable narrativeness about the birth of Kylo Ren, that it's it's never really truly set in stone what truly transpired and from what viewpoint is the correct one. And I love all that stuff. And I like how challenging it is to accept as well, because I do understand that there is a feeling, that there is an attraction to having the Luke Skywalker character be much like, say, for example, what they did with um, Indiana Jones in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, where, you know, that episode where Harrison Ford comes back as old Indiana Jones for one episode and he's got the fugitive beard and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. And it's like, you know, he's just sat in a chair being cool and pure indie. <laughs> I like that what they did with this was... I know it's become a meme as well to say, oh, well, it subverted my expectations. But it's not just that it subverted my expectations, but it's that it replaced it with something that I found both challenging and rewarding. I mean, I guess I haven't given it enough credit, like the people that don't like it enough credit as well to say, and perhaps I should, to say that because it is a big jump. It is a big leap to take with that character, considering that he is like one of the central elements of our pop culture growing up, like one of the most beloved characters, really. Everybody projected themselves onto Luke Skywalker when watching those movies. And then to find yourself having to project onto this craggly old man that had closed himself off from the world, it became far more challenging to do so and to see his viewpoint. Mm. And I, I like that, but I should give more credit to people that don't because... It is a big leap to take. Mm. And if you can take that leap, I think it's a rewarding film. But if you can't take that leap, then that film's going to fall for you. And I think even if you don't like it, I think it's very, very unfair to place all of that blame on Ryan Johnson's because at the end of the day, he is coming in to write a film that you know that's following up someone else's writing and he was not the person who made the decision to not have Luke in the first film and put him on yeah. that island and have him not be involved in any of the events of that first film mm-hmm. and you know he had to come up with with a reason as to why <laughs> you know yeah. JJ Abrams just thought oh we'll make it a treasure hunt for Luke Skywalker and he, he appears at the end I'm done bye <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and someone else has got to come up and go, fuck, uh, why is he on that island and why didn't he come back? <laughs> so- well, that's the thing with with those two films is particularly, I mean, I like The Force Awakens as well. I like it, but I think it's become less rewarding over time, but I still think it's a viscerally fun film, but I, I don't feel anything towards it anymore. And what I would say is that the thing is that the issue is with both The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi is that they are two franchise starters that are at war with each other. Mm. It should have been one or the other, essentially. And I honestly think that if The Last Jedi had been the beginning of the franchise, like that type of film for the beginning of a new franchise, then perhaps it would have been more successful, but also it would have allowed us to go more places with... 
because I think one of the things that you've mentioned to me as well is the lack of interaction between the old players of the series. Like, and I think if we had the Last Jedi as a starting point with the option of bringing Han into it, build towards the point of these characters reuniting would have been far more rewarding as well. Yeah, I think the thing I picked up on hindsight now, the kind of stupidity of the producers in how they handled the original cast, because I never understood why they would have left the story focusing on Leia till the end. Because even though she is the youngest cast member, in terms of being in shape to be in a film like that, she was the least in shape to be headlining a movie. I kind of felt like they should have done something with her and then leave it be because she hadn't been in great shape for quite a long time. Whereas, say, someone like Mark Hamill, you know, is, is fine. I mean, Harrison Ford, you're probably only ever going to get for one film because he always wanted Han to be killed off anyway. And that's like mm-hmm. a sort of a wish list thing. And he was probably only ever going to commit to doing one film. But Mark Hamill, he was probably up for doing the whole bloody thing. Yeah, I think he was. So I never really understood how they, why they handled it in that way. If anything, I think it should have been built up as the Han return being the thing that it, the series was building up to rather than him just being in one and done. Yeah. This is something I think people have danced around and nobody's really gotten into but did making these films take years off her life because if i recall i remembered in interviews her saying that she was told that in order to be cast in this film that she had to lose weight and that type of thing so she was going to the gym and she was jetting across the world as well to market the film Mm. but i think one of the things that nobody really talks about is how probably doing these films were at a detriment to her already fragile health yeah i mean let's face it she liked to party but I think actually there was too much demanded from her with these films, just in terms of, I get that having a layer that approaches something that we remember in terms of how she looks, but you know what? People age, people get old. That That's just natural. Why do, why do we have to have these characters go through <laughs> fitness camp in order to be in these films? Just Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I feel like something's happened there that nobody really wants to talk about. Maybe it's just the grasp of Disney that nobody really wants to get into that aspect. I feel like there's been a failure there, both on a story level, absolutely, but also in terms of the way in which she's been treated. Yeah. It does seem that from, obviously, the documentaries and the featurettes that she really enjoyed her time making Mm. these films. And I love Carrie Fisher. I find her, well, I found her to be an amazing woman. And I've read a couple of her books as well. And she's not just a fantastic actress, but she's also an incredibly talented writer. And that shows in some of the films that she's worked on as well. And some of the films that she's uh, saved in terms of her script doctoring. Oh, yeah, yeah. She is, she has lived an incredibly interesting and amazing life with its incredible highs and amazing lows. It's, um, the yeah. Princess Diaries is a, definitely a book to I mean, read. I, I was watching um, When Harry Met Sally the other day as well, and she's great in that <laughs> as well. Yeah. It's really sad as well, like, thinking that both... Uh, obviously, in When Harry Met Sally, the alternative couple are no longer with us. Yeah. Both very much died far too young, especially like Is it Bruno? Bruno. Bruno Kirby. I was watching him in uh, Donnie Brasco the other yeah. day, actually, yeah. um, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, yeah, he's great. I really like him. Yeah, yeah. I do think as well, like, The Last Jedi feels like a proper sequel to A New Hope in terms mm. of carrying on and reestablishing the message that A New Hope sets. And I think that that last shot of the last jedi it could have been the end of the sequels trilogy really i kind of <laughs> yeah. wish that 
that was the message that the whole sequel trilogy ended with was this beginning that anybody could be the jedi the jedi is never dead the force is within us all and everybody it's not about your bloodline because rise of the skywalker brings it straight back to bloodline again and i think like that that positive message of anybody can be the jedi anybody can rise up anybody can be the center of the next revolution is far more rewarding than how it does end you know with the what's your name well i'm ray skywalker it's like oh great another skywalker and i think that's the thing with with last jedi is that it was written in isolation yeah. by a filmmaker who was making that film. But with something like this, you can't really do that. With the original trilogy, I mean, you only have to read a few chapters of those J.W. Rinsler books to realise that this uh, grand plan that Lucas had is actually a bit of bullshit. He, they were pretty much flying by the seat of their pants with uh, yeah. coming up with the major story elements. I mean, the whole idea of Darth Vader being Luke's father was uh, something that was created way after A New Hope and in the development of Empire. So, yeah. And they had no fucking idea what they wanted to do with Jedi. But I think the main difference between that is that you still had George involved in all three. So even though they are making it up as they go along, you've still yeah. got a, a continuity of personalities. Continuity of vision. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what this sequel trilogy, I think what they should have done is have a co-writer that went all the way through. And then yeah. they could have worked with each one of the directors, but you had a writer that was contracted to be involved in all three films. Yeah. Then you would have a clear through line and also in terms of a, a, a sort of a screenwriting voice as well it would be sort of more consistent mm -hmm. in that way you know who my favorite george lucas is my favorite period of george lucas history is the george lucas that hired Irvin kershner yeah. to direct yeah the empire strikes back because not only was he hired because he had a connection with george lucas as being his previous uh, film teacher at school at film school but also he hired him specifically because he still felt somewhat intimidated by him and felt like he was somebody that could tell George no. Like, that was specifically a reason why he hired him. And it's like, that's the best idea that George Lucas has ever had in his entire career. Yeah, and I think it's the George Lucas that, that hires Lee Brackett, who was like the old school screenwriter Yeah, at the end of her career. And it's the George Lucas who's like the rebel against the studio system and, you know, forfeiting his rights in the director's guild, you know, because of the yeah. debacle and, and putting everything on the line for that. And I mean, that's George Lucas at his very best. And also, yeah, just putting people in charge that he knows and trusts that can make a, mm -hmm. a good film. Yeah, and I don't know what happened to that George Lucas. It's strange to see where that George Lucas disappeared, but you can see the beginnings of it in Jedi. I think that George Lucas died during the divorce. <laughs> she got him in the divorce. Well, yeah, but if you have to look, if you look at all the films that were made after that divorce, you know, you've got Jedi and then you've got Temple of Doom, which is heavily influenced by the divorce as well. So of course it is. Yeah, there's something that's been lost there in that moment. I think mm. having the divorce and bringing up his family, something went there. Yeah. But yeah, you still had that singular voice. And again, when we start talking about this film that we haven't even fucking started talking about yet, but you can see there is no plan. Absolutely yeah. no fucking plan. And the only plan that they had would be something that you would think of in an afternoon. Yeah. When these executives are saying, oh, we've got a plan. All it is is saying, okay, right. Kylo Ren, his journey is the opposite of Darth Vader. Well, that's all they had. We see him being one with the dark side of the force, and then he's going to go good. But to be honest, when you think about it, no, it's not. It's exactly the fucking same as Darth Vader. It Vader's. is the same, yeah. So that's all they had is just, we're going to do Darth Vader again, but with a different character. 
Um, everything else is up for grabs. <laughs> everything else. See, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, having looked at the time in which we have been recording for I this would point. say, ironically, even though we haven't actually talked about the film at all, I think everything you need to know is in that preamble. Yes. This is a film that has been carved by preamble. Absolutely. Every single move that they make is all influenced by preamble. I would actually even be hesitant to even call this a movie. Yeah. When I'm watching it, I don't feel like I'm watching a movie. And talking about how the previous films as well have influenced uh, some of the decisions that were made on The Last Jedi, I do actually have some pieces of information from the editors of Rise of the Skywalker in terms of both the schedule that they were under and also in terms of where The Last Jedi left them off. So just to go over some information, Skywalker editor Marianne Brandon was quite honest when it came to talking about the production of Rise of the Skywalker and what the general feeling was towards The Last Jedi. According to an article on Playlist, she had this to say, we were definitely still trying to figure out a lot of stuff. It's a struggle. It really affected everything. About a third of the way through, Lucasfilm president Kathy Kennedy was like, JJ has got to spend more time in the cutting room, and I knew that wasn't going to happen. Not with the schedule that we were on. Not with what he was dealing with on a daily basis. He was just exhausted at the end of, end of the day. And I think that also plays into some of the rumours that have come out in regards to the making of this film as well. J.J. Abrams, I think at one point, even floated the idea of having this split into two films, like uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2, and it being that type of film. That was pushed back, and then he proposed the idea of having a longer cut of the film so it could have you know, all of the necessary material within there to tell a coherent story, and that was pushed back as well. <laughs> and what we ended up with was Rise of Skywalker. Now, that's just in going by the rumours and really reading between the lines of what the editor is saying, but in regards specifically to The Last Jedi, they said, it's very strange to have a second film so consciously undo the storytelling of the first film. I'm sorry, that's what it felt like. I don't even feel that's true about the third film. It took where the second film ended and just tried to tell a story, I guess any story. They're responding to criticism that Rise of the Skywalker also is a further undoing of The Last Jedi, which I, I think it is in some essence in terms of what the general theme is. But they do actually recognise as well that at least Ryan Johnson's film had vision. He said, The Last Jedi, I will say this, was just a different take on a Star Wars saga. To Ryan's credit, he stuck to what he wanted to do and wanted, to, and he wanted to deconstruct the film and open up to a different direction. And that, that is the film that he made. It's controversial, but isn't that kind of a good thing? So even though they're kind of like kicking themselves over where on earth do we take it from where Ryan Johnson's left us with ourselves, trying to bridge the gap between Force Awakens and The Last Jedi now, I guess the issue is essentially that Ryan Johnson's made a sequel to a film that isn't really, it, like I say, it feels more like a franchise beginning rather than a middle film. It feels like this is the beginning of a story to tell. Yeah. Whereas really it needed to be solidifying and continuing the themes of the first film as to where this series was going. But again, that's the lack of direction once more. And essentially we've got these two films that are in their own way two separate beginnings entirely. And then Rise of Skywalker has got to make sense of that somehow. Yeah. So I, I guess that lets us in as well to the editing process of these films. <laughs> I wanted to just lay that out before we begin to discuss as well our opinions. So I will say, um, when I went to see Rise of the Skywalker, I went on the midnight showing with yourself mm -hmm. on the first day of release, as I have with all of these films. At the time, I thought, oh, it's it's fine, it's fine, that kind of thing. But this is the second time I've watched it through, and I will say that I had a very hard time trying to watch Rise of Skywalker to a point in which it left me at a place where I feel very apathetic towards Star Wars in general now. 
and I have been feeling this for some time, but I have no desire to revisit any Star Wars film anymore, including the ones that I like. I feel burnt out. And I know that The Mandalorian is supposed to be very good, and I've watched the first episode and I thought it looked promising, but at the same time, I just felt, I don't know if I've got it in me for any more of this, it's just more Star Wars. So, I think Rise of the Skywalker, to be honest, I really don't like it. Yeah. And that's solidified on this watch through for this episode. And I was hoping I would be in a position to defend it more and say, actually, at least it did this right, or at least it's trying to tell these stories. Or, you know, in much in the same way that I have as like to pull one out of the air like I did on the Hannibal episode or Prometheus episode, uh, where I seem to be in the face of a very flawed film, seems to have a more positive stance. And I was hoping that that's what I would be with this film, but I just couldn't, I didn't have it in me. I didn't have the energy for it. And I actually began to get a bit angry about how apathetic it made me feel about franchise that I once loved. Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same position. <laughs> I know Last Jedi broke a lot of people. This is the one that broke me. Yeah. Because at least, even if you don't like it, you can appreciate that The Last Jedi tried something mm. and committed to it even if you don't like it. And, you know, there are other flaws in that film anyway that I wouldn't defend. There are, you know, the Canto Bite stuff isn't great. And also there's a couple of things that get wasted, like the fact that they completely wasted the... Um, can't even remember a fucking name now. <laughs> the fucking Silver Stormtrooper. Oh, <laughs> Captain Phasma, yeah. How fucking memorable that character was. <laughs> <laughs> even in The Force Awakens, considering the amount of publicity... Gwendolyn Christie, an actress yeah, yeah. I really like, had in regards to the making of those films. She was inescapable during the marketing for those films. She was everywhere. And yeah. then I think it amounted to about three minutes of screen time for each yeah. film, if that. I thought in The Last Jedi they were going to bring her back as some sort of like bounty hunter kind of figure. Yeah. That had like left the First Order and was just doing stuff freelance. And like mm. I thought that would have been a way better way of approaching it. Or like a First Order mercenary sent out to kill traitors like Finn. It just seemed like all they had with that character, which seems to be emblematic of the whole fucking sequel trilogy, it's like, oh yeah, cool concept art for a silver sawn trooper. Let's make a yeah. character out of that. Let's have a be a woman. That's where it ends. <laughs> like that's, that's, it. That's, that's where the thought process yeah, ends. That's where the, yeah, that's it. Given all those faults, at least Last Jedi tried something and had some sort of vision behind it. This film has fuck all yeah there is nothing underneath the surface there is absolutely mm -hmm. nothing i mean all right the positive thing i want to talk about and this is in relation to the prequels so the positive thing i can get out of the sequel trilogy over the prequels is that i genuinely think on a basic filmmaking level in terms of the yeah. um technical aspects like the technical aspects like the shot compositions the cinematography yeah. um you got cinematography that tells stories in terms of sh from shot to shot. I mean, the dialogue, yeah. the general acting is easily. I don't think anyone can really argue this, and if you argue this, then you're an idiot. <laughs> really, like <laughs> they are infinitely superior to anything going on in the prequels because if you watch those prequels, they are incredibly poorly shot. Mm -hmm. They are not shot well. They have so proper staging yes george lucas did not direct those films if you know what i mean in the yeah. in, the, in the traditional sense you know he's there's that old adage uh you know of him sitting on sitting in his chair with his starbucks 
looking at the monitors <laughs> and doing fuck all. Yeah. Everyone looking scared stiff around him. I would not defend the prequels in any way regarding that. I mean, I would defend them in the fact that they, yeah, they tried something too, executed it very poorly, but they tried something and they had some kind of purpose. But on a technical level, these films look the part. Yeah. You know, they look like Star Wars films. I think that's why The Force Awakens dazzled me for so long, yeah. is because it yeah. looked like a Star Wars film and yeah. it had a feeling of a Star Wars film. But I think in retrospect, it's proven to be quite hollow because a lot of the things that I saw as promise in that film have not come to pass. But I appreciate all the love and care that everyone involved in the production, you know, from a costume, set dressing, animatronics point of view, design. Mm-hmm. Stunt work as well is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So really, ultimately, the failings of these films, they really come down to the people at the top, really, the people that are Mm -hmm. directing, writing, and just giving the films an overall sort of direction and the people that are making the big decisions, really. Yeah. All the blame is, is on their shoulders, really. Rise of Skywalker looks like a Star Wars film, but I got nothing. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's a weird viewing experience. It is, and it's it tonally, although everything looks the part, and it does look gorgeous as well. I watched it in 4K, I've got it on 4K Blu ray, and it looked beautiful from a technical standpoint. I cannot fault it, and it at least has the illusion of excitement during like the action and that type of thing, and the way that it's composed. Like JJ Abrams knows how to shoot his action sci fi movies, even Star Trek Into Darkness. There's a bit, little bit too much lens flare, but it looks the part. It looks exciting. This has that feeling as well, but there was something tonally that felt off about it that felt almost like one of the early Harry Potter films in which nothing had any impact and it all felt a bit whimsical and weightless. And I'm not saying that Star Wars is the most grounded series, but it actually felt like, like for example, A New Hope. I think one of the things I appreciated most about it was despite the fact that it's a sci-fi fantasy film, I could imagine a place like Mos Eisley existing. It felt a bit dirty and a bit gritty. There was dirt under the fingernails of the aliens that lived there. But I think the biggest thing, straight from the off, is that it's straight from the very first line of of information within the crawl, which is, the dead speak. It feels like a reference to Spectre. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the point in which watching it on this go-around again, I was like, oh, yeah, this is off. And also, just in terms of the storytelling, like, because the story I found impenetrable, it seems to be about one MacGuffin and the other, and to be honest, I don't know what any of these things were or any of the people that had the MacGuffins were or what they were supposed to do. <laughs> the first thing I write in my notes was, when in doubt, MacGuffin. <laughs> Because it seems painfully obvious that JJ and Chris Terrio had about a month to write this script. Yeah. And they, in order to get anything, anything on the table to work with, they had to lean back on familiar filmmaking tropes. And obviously one of the biggies is the MacGuffin. And uh, there's several MacGuffins in this film. You've got the the Sith Wayfinder. You've got that dagger. You've got, like, Ochi's ship. Uh, you've got yep. fucking loads. Who the um, fuck is Ochi, by the way? It's like oh, I don't know. I don't know where that came Some from. Some pervert. Like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he liked a big snake. Yeah, yeah. Some pervert. But even like the introduction of Palpatine as well. It, this is a film of things happening with no explanation. And even Palpatine's introduction, his introduction should have been this. For for one, I disagree with the very notion of including him in the film and it feels like a very cowardly move from the off to appease like i say in my intro 
a Reddit checklist, essentially. It's like a, a Reddit fanboard, fanboy checklist, really, to meet. And Palpatine is right at the top of that checklist. So yeah, yeah. straight away, I'm like, this is a kind of bankrupt idea to include him and also to retrospectively make him the author of all of Kylo Ren's pain. It feels <laughs> very Spectre. But also then to have his introduction to this world and to all of the characters in this world be something that happens before the film even starts, off screen. In fact, it was included in the game Fortnite rather than in the film itself. Mm. That should have been a moment of pure impact. That should have been a moment where you suddenly felt the weight of what was happening and what had been happening through the series. But it was so botched that it essentially, like, like I say, they give it away in the opening crawl. Yeah. And that is probably the least creative way in which you can reintroduce this character to us as, as an audience. I think also as well, it raises further questions as to what this Skywalker saga is actually about. Mm. Because prior to the, the sequel trilogy, whether or not it's a great idea, George Lucas ended up making the, the series, I mean, one to six, about the rise, fall and redemption of Anakin Skywalker and his final act being defeating the Sith and creating balance in the Force. I mean, whether or not you think that is the best idea in the world, mm -hmm. it is an idea and, and does yeah. give some sort of shape to the thing. And uh, this just completely shits all over that. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's sort of like, I, I've not watched Jedi since, but I can imagine watching it now and going, well, that was fucking pointless. <laughs> sort of thing you know it's kind of one of these things where they kind of like oh yeah we'll bring that and then they don't think about it after that they just sort of go yeah. headlong into it and um and then no one goes uh excuse me excuse me uh i've got a list of things here that i mean <laughs> all yeah. the things that why not to do this because again yeah it, it vanquishes any kind when you have situations where anybody can come back at any moment yeah your stakes are gone yeah there's no stakes in the story at all because anybody can come back. It uh, alleviates any kind of narrative tension that you can possibly create. That's what kind of happens in um, in the Marvel movies as well. Like the moment yeah. that you start bringing characters back from the dead in any way, shape or form, the moment that the idea of death itself anyway loses all weight within this series. And I, I'm, I'm just like writing in my notes, five minutes into the film, the story is broken because... You've got the bollocks with the Wayfinder. You've got all the stuff with the Emperor coming back and the fact that he made Snoke. That doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever, the whole author of all your pain. Mm -hmm. And then you've got all the... On top of that, yeah, you've got this Exegol, which has never been mentioned before, ever. No. Which is uh, suddenly the Sith homeworld. And it's one of the most blandest places in the series. Yeah, and then you've got all this bullshit with the Star Destroyers. These like thousands of star destroyers manned by God knows each one is its own Death Star. I think someone did a calculation on this and basically and rendered it. Unless he'd magicked them up, it is virtually impossible for this to happen in that time frame. <laughs> he would have had to have started about a hundred years prior or something. <laughs> and I'm just like, we're five minutes into the film and this, and nothing makes any sense. Like the story is broken. Yeah. We're back into prequel territory here. And I would I would wholeheartedly say. This is probably the worst Star Wars film since Attack of the Clones. Oh, I'm so glad you said it because I've been I've been on that fence for, for like... all its faults. I would even put Revenge of the Sith above this because at least even though it still suffers from many of the issues that plague the prequels, it still has some sort of purpose. 
like yeah, yeah, to it do does. something. But once more, there's a vision, there's a purpose, and there's a direction for that yeah. film. I, I uh, never I thought don't I'd ever that say that, this. but I, yeah. yeah, we have a film here that is worse than that. I mean, I, I, I'm definitely not a Revenge of the Sith defender. Yeah, it's uh, it's still a pretty terrible film, but it has some sort of like narrative purpose. Executes it very yeah. poorly, but it has some mm-hmm. sort of, of narrative course, yeah. purpose. This has fuck all. I don't. I generally don't know what this film is here for. It's a placeholder. And it's strange that it feels like a placeholder because this is meant to be the fucking grand finale. Yeah. <laughs> like That's what it is. And, and to be honest, talking about The Last Jedi as well as a way to lead us into speaking about Rey as a character. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. film, because of how much it undoes in regards to Rey's revelation within The Last Jedi and the revelation surrounding her and all of what that meant. At the end of The Last Jedi, I still firmly felt, yes, Rey is definitely our leading figure for this film. But by the end of Rise of Skywalker... I felt like her character, because it had been reverted back to the whole issue of bloodline and things like that, mm. her purpose within the series up until that point, up until the very last shot of Last Jedi, was to make the point that anybody could be a Jedi, despite you know your upbringing or anything like that. Even if your parents were just drunken slobs on a planet somewhere that sold you off so that they could get booze and die. Yeah. yeah okay brilliant yeah that's that's exactly the story that this series should be taking and a character like that should be at its center but by the end of the last jedi i felt oh well it's just the same story that we've seen a thousand times before in this series of somebody of noble birth without knowing it rising to the true power thanks to their special magical bloodline i think somebody said magic grandpa yeah <laughs> somewhere some, i can't remember which review but it was like magic blood from magic grandpa and it made me think, well, who would be, what would be the best story to tell then? And one of the things that I think that this series has botched, one of the characters, the character who's been really done a dirty throughout this series, probably even from The Force Awakens, is Finn. Yeah. And I really like John Boyega as an actor. I think yeah, he really yeah. nails it. And I've also always thought that with Finn, not only do we have something that we haven't seen in the Star Wars series before, which is a black central figure as well, but also we have somebody that comes from a background of being on the other side, the bad guy, a stormtrooper that's broken free of the shackles of the First Order. And it kind of redefines what we think about stormtroopers and everything that we know about them, about them just being binary, good or bad. And the fact that it kind of reshapes them as being victims of the First Order also. That's what the revelation of Finn in that very first film, in the very beginning of that first film, that's what it does to me. It makes me think, wow, stormtroopers are people as well, but not just people, they're victims, brainwashed child soldiers. Now, I instantly thought, well, that's our central role. That's got to be our central role, surely. Not just the idea of a stormtrooper being force-sensitive, but also the idea of him nurturing an uprising from within the First Order itself, like helping others from within that system break free of the shackles of what is essentially a slave labor force and overcoming the first order this primarily white evil power system to me that is a fascinating and interesting way to take that character and that seemed to be the promise of that character in that very first film that very first beginning and obviously you do that within the the framing of a star wars film make it fun make it um, exciting but i also think that they abandon that idea even before the last jedi begins <laughs> they lose anything to do with finn really towards the end of the first film I think he, his was probably a, um, a casualty of the rewrites that were done while 
Harrison Ford unfortunately broke his leg. Yeah, yeah. And they retooled the uh, the film into something else. But yeah, I think they've really missed a trick and done Finn a dirty by just relegating him to somebody that just simply shouts Ray. That's about 50% of his dialogue in this film. It, it is. Ray! <laughs> I also think even what they do with him in Rise of Skywalker is almost an acknowledgement that, yeah, they have fumbled the ball, but they do it in such a cowardly way. The whole idea of making him Force-sensitive, but not really Force-sensitive, it reminds me, because they marketed that first film as him being the Jedi for their kind of like bait-and-switch. He was the guy that wheeled the lightsaber in all of the marketing material. And it was mm-hmm. like, oh, you know this is Finn's going to be our Jedi. And then they kind of snatched that away from him. I think there's a community out there that felt really done a dirty by that. Mm. And then with what happened later when they marketed that film in China and really like on the posters made him such a tiny figure on that poster. I think this film is a way of them going, oh yeah, we really kind of fucked up there. Let's, Let's make him kind of a Jedi, but not properly a Jedi. And his whole skill, his his Jedi powers are essentially helping the scriptwriters write themselves out of a corner. Yeah. He just kind of instinctually knows something that the scriptwriters need him to know at any one moment, yeah. and that's it. Yeah. I, I really feel like, yeah, John Boyega and Finn have reason to be upset by these films. Yeah. I mean, and no one's really talked about... I mean, some of the, some of the actors have talked a tiny bit, but no one's really talked about their experiences in this film properly and I, I think it's going to be another few years until people already start talking about it properly but yeah i can't imagine that he's particularly happy i think he was sold on being the love interest for ray as well in the first film because that's that's how it seems to be played and that's what he thought that that seemed to be the direction that seemed to be going in and then that was also snatched away from him from you know people unknown, but the powers that be. Yeah, it just gets to the point where in this film where he's just there. Okay, so one thing that I would like to add, this is something that we're recording after the fact. Since we recorded this episode, more information about the making of Star Wars and specifically Daisy Ridley's character and John Boyega's character it has come to light. And We've decided to record just a little tidbit after the fact to reference this because it's we think it's really important to the conversation. So one of the things that I did read was John Boyega released an interview, I believe it was with GQ, the British GQ magazine, yeah, yeah. which detailed pretty much his turbulent relationship, not just with Star Wars in general, but Disney as well and the way that he was marketed as a black man in the Star Wars universe. And did you read it, Andy? Yeah, I did. I mean, I read it uh, a couple of days ago, and i kind of forgotten half the, the things <laughs> I've got up here now. But it was very frank. Yeah, it was quite illuminating, I would say. Yeah. I mean, th- there's been a certain amount of backlash to it, I, I would say, but uh, I'd say an equal to a great amount of support as well mm-hmm. regarding his comments i mean i imagine he's like i'm not gonna work for disney anymore anyway so fuck it <laughs> so i've mentioned of of all of the actors involved in the series i think he's the one that's been more vocally at least on social media distancing himself from the star wars experience and that's not something that he wants to pursue and whenever asked about actually returning to these characters not just him i guess all three of them including oscar isaacs and daisy ridley have really laughed off the idea of ever returning <laughs> yeah yeah. and uh, i think john boyega's really made a statement by closing these doors in a, in a way yeah it seems very final mm-hmm. he's made comments about 
his treatment on the film, not in a neg like it, it doesn't really go into how negatively he was treated as a person. He does say that they, you know, they wanted to market him for his blackness, but they didn't really know how to approach his blackness. Like they didn't have, for example, a uh, makeup artist that was trained in dealing with Afro Caribbean hair or that type of thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that understanding of the like the black experience behind the scenes. But also then he goes into like how they've dealt with his character as well and how characters like adam driver and daisy ridley they knew how to give their characters no one's but not finn yeah, yeah i mean i really like what adam driver does in this film but it's his character is essentially the second go around anakin skywalker yeah it was an opportunity to channel this particular trilogy around a unique character and they bailed on it not even at the late stages they bailed on it before the end of the first movie yeah, It didn't feel as much of an issue at the time when watching it, but as soon as you have that moment where Finn in The Force Awakens wields his lightsaber and then is sort of mowed down by Kylo Ren and then yeah. it's up to Rey to save the day, that character's done. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere else to go because they've effectively cut his arc at that point. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few comments online where people have gone, oh, you've just been ungrateful. Uh, they give you that opportunity and now you're shitting on it and stuff like that. And I was like, that's not really the point of what he was yeah. saying at all. It's like it's like being told to just be happy with what you're given. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I remember when it all came out on and I don't know this is all a separate thing entirely as well, and it's not as racially charged as the situation surrounding uh, John Boyega is. But remember when Shia LaBeouf came out against his work on Transformers and that. Yeah, yeah. He felt like his career was just heading to a dead end. And I do remember that he said that Steven Spielberg and Michael Bay had spoken to him to say that he comes across as very ungrateful for these films. And that was kind of why they stopped him from returning past the third film. But I think he was happy for it. Yeah, yeah. Once that contract was up for his Transformers films, he was out of there. Yeah. (laughs) I would say as well, Shia LaBeouf is the, he's doing some interesting, weird little films right now Mm. for, for, for an interesting, weird guy that he is. Yeah. So I think the other interesting thing as well to come out of that particular interview is his defense of jj abrams Mm. despite all these other things happening he still defended jj and seemed to lift the lid on what was actually a complete salvage job yeah it seemed like a lot of the other rhetoric regarding returning to the franchise was just pr and it sounded like something he wasn't really intending to do and was just in all intents and purposes a salvage job yeah I mean, I've got that quote here, like, everyone needs to leave my boy alone. He wasn't even supposed to come back and try to save your shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think think that's it. I think, like, we mentioned that they already had a terrible experience with The Force Awakens. I mean, there's plenty that you can read about that. And he's touched upon it in interviews as well about the experience in making. And, like, filmmakers, they say it in such a way about, like, oh, the pressures and demands of the job and stuff like that, which is their way of framing, well, we didn't have enough time. You know, the, the production company didn't give us enough time. That's filmmaker speak. When they talk about demands and pressures, that's what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. I guess in many ways, I still do think it has a lot of J.J. Abrams-related issues, but I don't think that J.J. Abrams' involvement is the thing that toppled this tower. It was already way on its way down, 
And in fact, I do still like The Force Awakens. I still think J.J. Abrams probably could make a really good, if not great, Star Wars film in the right circumstances. This was not the right circumstances. No. And it's good to see J. Uh, J. Uh, J. <laughs> Sorry, it's good to see John Boyega. I keep on going to call him J.J. Boyega. J.J. <laughs> Boyega. <laughs> it's good to see John Boyega come to his defense like that as well. Because yeah. even though I have been critical, and in this episode I am certainly critical about J.J. Abrams and his uh, writing and directing, in this film particularly. But yeah, I think there's more happening behind the scenes that he is far more unhappy with. Definitely, definitely. And we won't hear about that for an awful long time uh, from no. J.J. anyway. I guess it also gives us a chance to go into information about Daisy Ridley, what she yeah. brought to write recently yeah. as well, in terms of the making of the film. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that she's mentioned is... In an interview with Josh Gad, she, I think, has let slip, really. This isn't (laughs) something that she was supposed to say. No. But talking about Ray's character arc through these films, this really demonstrates how little there was in place for a plan of action. And she mentioned that in the first film, her mysterious parentage was being linked to Obi-Wan, and that was like her actor's journey was linking it to that character then in the last jedi it firmly became just a couple of nobodies Mm -hmm. and then and then in the rise of rise of the skywalker rise of skywalker the rise of skywalker (laughs) rise of skywalker that's it then in rise of skywalker it was not really set in stone until the last minute she said that like even on set she was being told, we're doing Palpatine, Palpatine is your granddad. And then it would be, we're not doing that anymore, we're doing something else. Yeah. And it was like back and forth, back and forth. And I'm wondering if it is something that's actually been elaborated on in post. With yeah. Probably some reshooting or something like that. Yeah, those few sentences alone just illustrates how little they had to go on when wrapping up this trilogy. Yeah. Okay, and with that, I think we'll go back to the show. They had the similar issue with Han Solo in Jedi, in in Return of the Jedi, (laughs) yeah, where they came up with the whole idea of him being sort of frozen in carbonite, and then they had the whole rescue mission, but then after that they had no fucking idea what to do with him, because Mm -hmm. obviously the original idea that Harrison Ford wanted was for him to be killed in the sort of towards the end of the second act or something to add yeah. stakes to the story and then and obviously george said no but <laughs> they absolutely should have done and that's a complete missed opportunity because although they did it eventually in force awakens i, I think the execution of it is uh a bit questionable <laughs> yeah to say the least uh, i think the moment works but i think it it's it now its stature within the series has diminished since i saw that film yeah yeah like the, the way in which that whole scene is constructed i like but i don't think it works anymore and i feel like han solo is a missing element in these films now yeah definitely um especially because of what they did with luke skywalker and again i i really like what they did with luke skywalker but i still think it maybe needed that old world element to like keep us grounded within this world you know like the familiar because han solo he is unchanged and he's still like familiar to us he's still the han solo we recognize i think if they were going to do that with Luke, which was so challenging, they perhaps needed somebody in that film to be to to, to steady the ship, to be our kind of, um, I guess, our rod that was still in that place, and maybe that's the film to kill him in. I just constantly have to just question the whole point of these films, like even just down to the the soft reboot nature with the very idea of the first order and resistance, and that it's you've basically just hit the reset button on the situation. Mm-hmm but done it in a very kind of lazy way, I'd say. 
In a way, I feel like the setup of the trilogy is broken from the start because I feel like the way they hit that reset button was incredibly lazy. Yeah. They needed the time to have thought of a situation that was maybe a little bit, it stood on its own a little bit more. But I don't, I think the main issue is here. I don't think Disney were particularly interested in that. They were more interested in recreating the basic sort of foundations that the original trilogy rested on and then building on from there. And I think that's what ultimately is the the bigger issue surrounding this. Yeah. Because of that, I don't feel like there is anything particularly uh, distinctive about uh, the sequel trilogy. No. And there's no particular reason as to why it is there other than to be a product for Disney. Yeah. And the thing is, I, for the longest time, I, I kind of resisted against that. And then when this film came out, it kind of all clicked for me. Same here. I, I was still very firmly on board in terms of what the sequel trilogy was at the end of The Last Jedi. And I think this film has made me reevaluate everything that has come before. And when The Last Jedi came out, I was still very much a fan of The Force Awakens as well. And now I was going to watch it for this podcast and I just didn't have the energy. <laughs> I watched The Last Jedi and I was no. very much appreciative. I also think it's a very well shot film that it looks beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But even even with that film, a film that I like, when it finished, I was like, now I've got to watch Rise of the Skywalker. And I was just like, I'm just exhausted by this. This is just... <laughs> and because as well, because it's been kind of like absorbed by this um, Disney blob, I'm starting to find like, okay, yeah, technically fantastic they look so much better but i'm starting to find them indistinguishable from like the like you can see really that they're just trying to turn them into spacefaring marvel movies in a way <laughs> like it's just trying to make star wars fit that marvel mold and rather than allowing star yeah. wars to be its own thing as well i mean we haven't even talked about and i think this would be a conversation for another day but that's not even touching about what they've done with the spin-offs films that they've made of uh, rogue one and solo yeah yeah because that could be an episode all of its own really <laughs> solo especially yeah, i mean rogue definitely. one jeez oh, where did st both of them have the same production history oh yeah <laughs> you could do two for the price of one <sighs> The whole thing's a mess. Yeah. Everything to do with Star Wars at the moment with Disney is a mess. Like the, the production of the films, the merchandise that isn't selling, the uh, slightly disastrous theme park lands. <laughs> I had a friend that went there and said it was very good. They, when I went to Disney, they were still working on it, but it looked quite good. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh... I think the Rise of the Resistance ride has slightly redeemed it, but it's still yeah. not what they originally advertised. Yeah, it isn't. They originally advertised a walking, talking land where you can be your own character within the land and you interact with aliens and other people living it in, this, in this settlement. paper. No, budget cuts. <laughs> and, th and this was way before, like, uh, you know... Coronavirus and, and yeah. yeah, I remember like people just thought it's just like walking through a Star Wars museum. Yeah, it was supposed to sort of rival the uh, sort of Harry Potter lands that uh, Universal still doing you know still doing pretty well in in Universal and they are, they are yeah. very immersive and uh, Disney keeps trying to do this like with the Avatar Land and now with this and they keep but watching yeah it. Avatar Land I went there and I really love the look of the place but that's all that it has going yeah. for it like the rides are good as well like the animatronic ride my uh, daughter and wife went on and said it was fantastic and i got to see some videos of the animatronics and they looked amazing and i went on the flight of the navi ride and that was incredibly immersive but when you're actually going through the land it just looks good but that's it there's no other immersive element of the land itself there's no people there dressed as navi or anything like that there's nothing really to bring you into that world it's mm. just another redressed section of the park in a way that's no different than any other part of the park 
Oh god, this could get us down a, a whole new road of conversation. Yeah, just the whole I just I, I don't know because there seems to be a general unease with them wanting to give you the the same thing over again, but wanting it to be new, but at the same yeah. time almost like dismissing the old things that made it successful to start with and thinking that their th- their new thing is just as good and can stand in its own two feet. I mean, like that Star Wars land is a a prime example of that. Yeah. I can't remember the bloody name of the guy, but it was an executive at Disney World or Disneyland, and he was saying that the original plans for Star Wars land were more indebted to the, the worlds and feeling that the original trilogy gave you. So there was going to be like, it was more going to be based on Tatooine with uh, mm-hmm. more of like a Mos Eisley feel. Uh, with the yeah. cantina and everything, and it was more like it was kind of the thing that more the thing that everybody would like because it mm. would still be interesting for new fans, but also it would still be interesting for old fans. Whereas it kind of feels like they wanted to do a park that was doing everything that Secret Cinema does. Yeah, yeah, in follow, a way, yeah. follow what they do. Like it would just be like a walking version of that that requires uh, no effort. Yeah. Whereas they drew up all these plans. It got to the point where... I was excited for it as well. Like, when I saw the plans, I was like, that looks great. But it got to the pl- it got to, it got to that stage, and it got to Kathleen Kennedy's approval, and she was like, I think we need to do something that's new, that is more sequel trilogy-based, and um, not something that for these 50-year-old fans want. What did he think my kids are watching? So, even though the plans for Star Wars Alone look cool, they failed to deliver on this sort of immersive thing. But yeah. also, you're dealing with a Star Wars land that is actually a land that's not featured in any of the films. Yeah. And doesn't really have much callback to what people actually like about, you know, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's a very <laughs> odd thing. I mean, I, I think they just about got away with it, especially when, when the second ride opened. But I still think yeah. that a lot of people feel like that that land was a bit of a a missed opportunity and i think that's almost like a a nice way to sort of parallel against the films that yeah it does feel a bit like a missed opportunity at times okay so that's all we have time for on this first part of our star wars special if you join us next week we'll be discussing more star wars (laughs) as we return to i guess it'll be like the main bulk of star wars episode nine rise of skywalker we'll be more discussing specifically that film rather than the nature of everything surrounding uh, the star wars franchise i say that that is the plan but whether or not we record it as such is completely different Mm -hmm. it's like it's entirely up to the gods (laughs) but anyway thank you very much for listening today i've been gareth (sighs) (laughs) and that exasperated sigh has been andy take care my little jedis (laughs) 